Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn off all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theater, and this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Philadelphia Phantoms. When I was growing up, I would travel to different places in America with my grandparents and my parents, mostly places in Pennsylvania, Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Wherever we went, we would go on a ghost tour, if there was one. It was always my favorite thing we did. When I was eight years old, my grandparents took me on my first ghost tour. It was in Colonial Williamsburg, the perfect place for ghost stories. You're away from the modern world completely. You can't even hear the sounds of cars. It is pitch black dark, except for the single white candle in the storyteller's lantern. She walks us through the fields, the streets, to the fronts of old buildings, you could be in any time. It could be centuries ago. And as you listen to the stories told quietly in the dark, you begin to feel the tingling of fear starting in the pit of your stomach. Because there are ghosts in these houses. There are ghosts all around you. At any second, you might see the apparition of the man running barefoot out of the woods right towards you, coming for you. Then you look at the windows of the old mansion, feeling absolutely certain that at any moment now you will see the face looking out at you. That terrible face you've seen in your nightmares since you were young, something right in front of you that's been dead for a very long time. Sometimes you never see the face, and sometimes you do. By the end of that ghost tour, I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was born and raised in Sussex County, Delaware. When I graduated high school, I went to college at Arcadia University in Glenside, Pennsylvania, just outside the city of Philadelphia. Arcadia University has many ghost stories of its own, but those are tales for another time. I graduated with a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in acting in May 2007, and I needed to find a job. Luckily for me, the ghost tour of Philadelphia was hiring, and I got the job. I have been telling Philadelphia's ghost stories for 12 years now, and I will do so as long as I live in the city. It is the job I always dreamed of, and I still love doing it as much and, in fact, more than I did when I started. I have met and worked with so many incredible people, others who are just as passionate about unveiling the darker corners of history as I am, honoring and remembering the dead through the art of storytelling. It is true that without these ghost stories, Many of the people involved in them would be forgotten by history. But the ghost tour of Philadelphia, and all of us who haunt the streets of Old City and Society Hill at night wearing a black cape and carrying a lantern, keep their memory alive night after night, year after year. We do not forget them. There have been many nights before and after giving a ghost tour, where I walk around the shadowy, cobblestoned streets of Philadelphia, and I can feel in my bones that I am not alone. 
You cannot stand anywhere in the old city district of Philadelphia and not feel that, if you take the time to stop and really listen. It is a place where history is alive. You can still feel the energy of the monumental events that took place right where you stand and the echoes of the past that most people have forgotten, but they still make themselves felt to you in the dark. Sometimes, out of the corner of your eye, you'll see someone walking next to you, a person who is not there, a spirit watching, making sure you're telling their story true. I try as best I can. We all do. The ghost tour of Philadelphia has been telling these spectral tales nightly since 1995. To give you an idea of its longevity in the industry, its website is www.ghosttour.com. It was founded and is still run by Eileen Reeser, nicknamed the Ghost Lady of Philadelphia. In 2007, her husband Tim Reeser wrote a book called Ghost Stories of Philadelphia, PA. I asked permission from Eileen to feature some of these stories on the podcast, and she said yes. So tonight, I will tell you my favorite spooky tales from the city I have called home for the past 16 years of my life, and I'll tell you my own personal stories of things I've experienced at night, in the dark. This episode is dedicated to Eileen Reeser, and to all my colleagues who share my passion for telling these stories. When I'm doing the ghost tour of Philadelphia, this is how I always begin it. Good evening, my friends, and welcome to the ghost tour of Philadelphia. My name is Josh, and I am your guide tonight. Tonight, I will take you on a tour to visit some of the most haunted places and one of the most haunted cities in the United States of America, the city where America began. Tonight, you will hear stories from the darker side of Philadelphia's history, tales of restless spirits, haunted houses, and a graveyard where the dead do not rest in peace. I should say before we begin that I am not a paranormal investigator of any kind. I am a storyteller, and all the stories I will tell you tonight are based on historically documented hauntings, our sources being newspaper articles, eyewitness interviews, and a book called Ghost Stories of Philadelphia, PA, written by Tim Reeser. People do often experience unusual things on this tour. I've been doing the ghost tour of Philadelphia for 12 years, and I've also experienced unusual things on the tour, and I'll tell you more about that as we go along. Before we begin our journey through haunted Philadelphia tonight, I'd like to begin by telling you about one of the most horrific times in Philadelphia's history. I'm speaking of the summer of 1793, one of the worst yellow fever epidemics America ever faced. Yellow fever was thought of as the American equivalent of the Black Death of Europe, called yellow fever because when you caught it, your skin and your eyes would turn yellow as your internal organs began to shut down. You would begin to bleed from your eyes, nose, and mouth, and you would vomit black blood. During the epidemic of 1793, approximately 5,000 people in Philadelphia died of this disease. 10% of the city's population was wiped out by yellow fever in four short months. The deadliest time during the epidemic was in October of 1793, when 700 Philadelphians died of yellow fever in only seven days. With so many people dying in such a short amount of time, it's no surprise that the yellow fever left behind more than one restless spirit, and the epidemic of 1793 creeps up in many of the ghost stories I will tell you tonight. 
These are my own versions of these tales, crafted by historical research and personal experience, constantly evolving through the years as I learn. There is always more to learn, more history to know, in all the haunting ghost stories of Philadelphia. Our first haunted site on our ghost tour of Philadelphia is Carpenter's Hall, tucked away in a quiet corner of Chestnut Street in Old City. It's important that we begin at Carpenter's Hall, which was finished in 1774, because it is there where the First Continental Congress began to meet. As more and more delegates arrived in Philadelphia from all the different colonies, they quickly realized that Carpenter's Hall was not going to be big enough to accommodate all the delegates comfortably, and that's one of the reasons why they moved over to the Pennsylvania State House a few blocks away, a building we now know better, of course, as Independence Hall. Independence Hall has ghost stories of its own, and we'll get to them a little later. But after Congress left Carpenter's Hall, it became the home of the Bank of Pennsylvania. And it was during the time that Carpenter's Hall was used as a bank that one of the first recorded bank robberies in American history happened here on August 31st, 1798. It was an inside job. A night watchman who worked here named Thomas Cunningham got a friend of his named Isaac Davis, and together the two of them broke into the bank vault in the basement of Carpenter's Hall, and they stole over $160,000, the equivalent of about $3 million in today's money. However, those two men did not get away with their crime. They made a fatal mistake. They started depositing the stolen money in banks all over town, including the bank they had stolen it from, the Bank of Pennsylvania at Carpenter's Hall. They were eventually arrested and taken to the Walnut Street Jail just a few blocks away. Isaac Davis, one of the two men involved in this bank robbery, made a deal with Thomas Mifflin, the then governor of Pennsylvania, in exchange for returning the stolen money and telling them how the robbery was carried out, the governor let Isaac Davis walk free. He never served even an hour in jail, disappearing from Philadelphia in the middle of the night. Thomas Cunningham, the night watchman who worked at Carpenter's Hall, who is the mastermind behind the bank robbery, was in jail for a week or so, and then he too was released. To this day, no one knows exactly why he was. That remains a mystery. But what we do know is that after being released from jail, Thomas Cunningham returned to Carpenter's Hall, the scene of his crime, because he lived in one of the rooms upstairs on the third floor in the attic. Two weeks passed after Thomas Cunningham's return, and the people working in the bank at Carpenter's Hall began to notice a very unpleasant smell inside the building. They searched room by room trying to find the source of it, but they finally traced it all the way upstairs to Thomas Cunningham's locked attic room. They knocked on the door and got no answer, didn't hear anyone moving around inside, and knowing that Thomas Cunningham was a criminal, they summoned the police. The police came, they knocked on the door, and they got no response, so they broke down the door, and they finally found what they'd been seeking the source of the terrible smell inside Carpenter's Hall. It was Thomas Cunningham's rotting corpse, found lying on his bed. 
His body was so badly decomposed in the summer heat, the doctors were not able to accurately determine how or why he had died. It is very likely, however, that Thomas Cunningham died of the yellow fever. In 1798, there was yet another yellow fever epidemic going through the population of Philadelphia, not as bad as the epidemic of 1793, but that time had left long shadows of terror in the minds of everyone who lived in Philadelphia. Ever since Thomas Cunningham's mysterious demise, people have heard the sounds of phantom footsteps, disembodied footsteps walking along the narrow brick pathways surrounding and leading up to Carpenter's Hall. Sometimes people will hear the sound of someone suddenly walking directly behind them, and they turn around quickly to see who it is, and there's nobody there that they're able to see. Sometimes people hear the sound of footsteps that appear to be walking up into Carpenter's Hall itself, again when there's no one visibly there, leading many people to wonder if it's the ghost of Thomas Cunningham reenacting his last walk into the building to die. The people that work inside Carpenter's Hall say they hear the sound of these phantom footsteps as well. They hear the footsteps ascend the staircase inside the building and go all the way upstairs to the third floor, to the attic, to the room where Thomas Cunningham was found dead centuries ago. Then they hear those footsteps slowly pacing back and forth, and the sound of furniture in that room being violently dragged across the floorboards, and then silence. And then the people working there realize that it's their job to go upstairs and find out exactly who or what is walking around in that attic room. So they go up to the attic and they find the door to that room is locked just like it should be. So they unlock the door and push it open and take a few cautious steps inside. And inside that dark attic room they find waiting for them nothing. There's no man up in the attic who could have been walking around. And all the furniture they heard being loudly dragged across the wooden floorboards is exactly where it should be and has not been touched. A man who had been on my ghost tour one night came up to me at the end of it to say he had a story that he wanted to share with me, something strange that had happened to him earlier that day at Carpenter's Hall, and this is before I started telling the Carpenter's Hall story on my ghost tour, and if you visit Carpenter's Hall during the day, they don't talk about Thomas Cunningham's decomposing body up in the attic. This man said, that while on a tour of Carpenter's Hall, all of a sudden, there is a very bad smell in the room. Park rangers announced that the tour had to end immediately, and they had to escort everyone outside the building, which they did, without saying another word about what was happening or why they had to leave. This man said that he knew what the smell was that he experienced that day inside Carpenter's Hall, he told me that he was a policeman, and that he recognized the smell in Carpenter's Hall as the smell of a dead body that had been lying around for a very long time. He said, it's an unmistakable smell. There's no other smell like it. Nothing else it could have been, in his opinion. One of the most disturbing things that has ever happened on my ghost tour happened one night at Carpenter's Hall. I tell the story in a big open area, no trees around, no place for anyone to hide. One night I was telling the story and I noticed a man had joined the group. Other people in the group turned and noticed the man as well. He was an old man with long gray hair and a long gray beard standing at the back of the group, and he was dressed in period costume. 
There are lots of historical reenactors that work in that part of Philadelphia, so I figured he was one of them just stopping by to listen for a moment, so I kept talking and shifted my attention to the other side of the group. And then someone screamed, and I turned and looked, and the old man was gone. There's no way for someone who's standing with the group to just disappear in a matter of a few seconds. There's nowhere for anyone to go. But that old man did disappear that night. Almost everyone in the group had seen him, and then they noticed that he was gone. Every time I tell that story since that night, I think about Thomas Cunningham, and I wonder if it was his ghost listening to his story being told, or perhaps another spirit connected with the building or with the ground that we're standing on, whose tale has been lost in the shadows of history. The ghost of Thomas Cunningham has also been seen and felt a dark, shadowy presence in the basement of Carpenter's Hall, which is where the bank vault was once located, still haunting the scene of his crime centuries later. Just a few blocks away from Carpenter's Hall, you will find the City Tavern. The City Tavern was originally founded back in 1773, and it was the place where all the members of Congress would go to eat and drink and unwind after a long, hard day's work at Independence Hall a few blocks away. John Adams called the City Tavern the most genteel tavern in all America. Sadly, if you go visit the City Tavern today, it is not the original building that you're looking at. The original tavern burned in 1854, and the tavern you see today was reconstructed in 1975 as an exact replica of the original building. When they rebuilt the city tavern, they resurrected its spirits, and the first ghost story about the tavern that I will tell you takes us back to the tragic day of the fire, a day in March of 1854. On that day, a wedding was due to take place at City Tavern. The groom was feeling a little bit nervous, so he went downstairs to the basement where the bar was located to get a little liquid courage to go through with the ceremony. Meanwhile, upstairs on the second floor, the bride and her bridesmaids were busy getting ready for the happy event. The bride was said to be a very beautiful young woman with long brown hair and a wedding dress that had a train over ten feet long. Now keep in mind, this is 1854. A lot of the lighting is still provided by candles. Upstairs on the second floor, amidst all the happy goings-on, nobody noticed a candle fall over. No one noticed that candle start a small fire until it was too late, and the fire reached the bride's ten-foot-long wedding dress train. Meanwhile, the groom downstairs in the basement, he didn't realize anything was wrong until he began to smell the smoke coming from the fire on the second floor, and then he began to hear the screams. The screams of the bride and her bridesmaids trapped upstairs in the fire on the second floor, burning to death. The groom ran up the basement stairs, intent on rescuing them, but as soon as he reached the staircase that would lead him up to the second floor, he saw the stairs were already engulfed by fire, and the groom had no choice but to run outside of City Tavern and watch as the building burn, and listen as one by one the screams stopped. The bride and most of her bridesmaids tragically perished in the fire at the city tavern that day, and because the building was damaged so badly in that fire, it was eventually demolished. But like I said, when they rebuilt the city tavern, they resurrected its spirits, 
and almost immediately after the tavern opened again to the public in 1975, people began to report seeing the ghostly apparition of a young woman with long brown hair and a long old-fashioned white dress standing on the staircase inside of City Tavern, the staircase leading from the first to the second floor, sometimes seen beckoning to those people passing by as if asking them to join her before she disappears. There are other ghosts that haunt the second floor not as inviting as that one. Sometimes people up on the second floor encounter another apparition, the spirit of a woman screaming on fire who then disappears, leaving the scent of burning lingering in the air long after she's gone. One visitor on one of my ghost tours told me that she had dined at the city tavern the previous day. She went to use the bathroom on the second floor and was washing her hands and was terrified when she looked in the mirror and saw a woman in a white dress standing behind her looking at her and then the woman vanished. Guests who dine on the second floor of City Tavern since it opened again have reported the same phenomena, that they'll be in the midst of their meal and all of a sudden, without being touched by human hands, their water glasses will fall over by themselves. Sometimes the lamps on the tables will turn off all on their own. Some people wonder if it is one of the ghostly spirits of, of the tragedy of City Tavern hoping to prevent another disaster like the one that took their lives. The manager's offices at City Tavern are located on the third floor. At least one previous manager of City Tavern has reported that he was staying late at night long after the tavern had closed balancing the books, and he began to hear strange sounds coming from the second floor. It sounded like tables and chairs were being moved. He thought that perhaps some of his employees, thinking that he had left for the night, had returned to the tavern to have their own private party. Incensed, the manager went downstairs, and as soon as he stepped foot on the second floor, all the sounds stopped. He then went into the dining room where he'd heard the strange sounds, and he turned on the lights, and then he saw that every table and every chair in the second floor dining room had been pushed to the sides of the room, leaving a large, empty space in the center, as if somebody was making room for a large party, like a wedding. The ghosts of the bride and her bridesmaids are not the only spirits to haunt the city tavern. There's another ghost story that goes back even earlier, back to the time of the Revolution. Forced during the Revolutionary War, the city tavern was a very popular place for soldiers to congregate. One night, in the basement of city tavern, two soldiers got into a violent, drunken argument. One of them, a man named Colonel Craig, drew his pistol and fired, intending to kill the other soldier, but his aim was off, and instead... He shot a waiter who was standing nearby. The waiter was shot in the chest. He fell to the floor and there was pandemonium. Everyone ran out of the tavern into the streets of Philadelphia. And this soldier, Colonel Craig, who murdered this waiter, was never punished for his crime. His commanding officer, General Anthony Wayne, known to some as Mad Anthony Wayne, hid Colonel Craig in a closet in the tavern until the police gave up their search and left the premises, and then he left with Colonel Craig under the cover of darkness. If you ever get the chance to go and visit the City Tavern, which I highly recommend you do if you're ever in Philadelphia, you'll notice as soon as you step through its front door that it looks exactly the way it did back in the 18th century. It's the same kind of menu they ate and drank from back then, and everyone who works at the tavern is dressed in period costume. It really is like taking a step backward in time. 
and sometimes in the basement. People notice one of the costume waiters suddenly put his hand to his chest, and they watch as his white shirt begins to turn red with blood. He falls to the floor, and when he hits the floor, he vanishes. So it seems as if his ghost also remains trapped at the city tavern, perhaps waiting for the day when his killer will finally be brought to justice, even though now, of course, Hundreds of years have passed by. Just a few blocks away from the city tavern, at 6th and Walnut Streets, is the entrance to Washington Square. It is one of five original squares laid down in William Penn's original plans for the city of Philadelphia, his green country town, as he called it. Washington Square was originally known as Southeast Square. Washington Square is its name today. It's a beautiful place with stone walkways and many trees soaring high overhead, centuries old. Over the years, Washington Square has been used for many functions. It was at one point in its history known as Congo Square because it was one of the only places in Philadelphia where both enslaved and free Africans could congregate without being interrupted by anyone. Washington Square, from the late 17 to the early 1800s, was also used as a potter's field. It is a graveyard that holds the bodies of, some say, approximately 5,000 people. All are in unmarked graves and all the bodies are still there, underneath your feet. They have never been moved. Bones still come to the surface occasionally to this day. About 2,000 of the people buried in Washington Square are unknown soldiers from the Revolutionary War, both British and American. In the corner of the square where the soldiers' bodies are buried, there is a monument, a tomb of the unknown soldier that has an eternal flame in their honor. Other than the soldiers, People buried in Washington Square include the bodies of Native Americans, the bodies of both free and enslaved African Americans, also the bodies of prisoners who were died in the Walnut Street Jail, which was right across the street. Prisoners who died in the Walnut Street Jail would sometimes be carried out of the jail, across the street, and dumped in a large pit in Washington Square. When they couldn't fit any more bodies in the pit, they then covered it and dug another one. There's also a section of Washington Square devoted to the graves of orphan children. And many victims of the yellow fever epidemic of 1793 are buried in its soil in mass graves. So, with all the people buried inside of Washington Square, it's no surprise that the ground is haunted. There is one ghost that has been seen more often than any other, and whose legend continues to survive. Back in the late 17 and early 1800s, when the ground was used primarily as a graveyard, it was very common for the gravediggers to make a little extra money on the side by selling fresh body parts and full corpses to doctors and medical students so they could do research in human anatomy. This practice became so prevalent that Washington Square became known as the night market for that reason. There were no street lamps in Washington Square back then like there are today, so when the sun set, it was pitch black dark. And with the darkness, the grave robbers, also known as the resurrectionists, would come, digging up the bodies of those who had been freshly buried and selling the corpses to the highest bidder. 
Of course, many people were upset by the desecration of the graves at Washington Square, and among them was a mysterious old woman. People began to notice that as the grave robbing was becoming a huge problem in Washington Square, that every night, as soon as the sun set, when it got dark, a woman could be seen walking into Washington Square, always dressed the same way. She always wore a long, simple black dress, the kind of dress a Quaker woman of the time would have often worn, as well as a long black cloak with a hood over her head, and she kept her head bent down, looking at the ground so no one could see her face. This woman would patrol Washington Square all night long, protecting the bodies buried there, frightening away anyone who dared to desecrate the graves. And when the sun rose and the morning came, the woman would walk out of Washington Square. All attempts to follow her failed. Nobody knew who she was. But she appeared night after night, month after month, and then year after year. The people of Philadelphia gave the mysterious old woman a name. They called her Leah. Leah was the guardian of the dead in Washington Square for many years, until her own death. One morning when the sun rose and people came walking back into the square, they found Leah's corpse stretched out on top of someone's freshly filled-in grave, apparently dying of unknown causes the previous night. But the, the even bigger mystery was Leah's true identity. Although people had seen her in Washington Square for years, nobody knew who she really was. No one identified her. No one claimed her body. So they had no choice but to bury this poor elderly woman's body somewhere in Washington Square in an unmarked anonymous grave, just like the thousands she had spent the last years of her life so bravely protecting. But it soon became apparent that although she was buried somewhere in its soil, Leah's ghost was haunting Washington Square. In the centuries since her death, many people visiting Washington Square at night reported seeing the terrifying apparition of Leah, an old woman stooped over wearing a long black dress and a long black hooded cloak. She's been seen almost everywhere in Washington Square, most frequently appearing by the tomb of the unknown soldier. One of the most intriguing sightings of the ghost of Leah happened in 2003 to a Philadelphia policeman. This policeman said he was walking across the square very early one morning on his way to work before the sun came up, and he was looking across the square and he saw an old woman wearing a long black dress, a long black hooded cloak. There was something about this woman that unsettled him, something about her that just wasn't right. He wanted to get a closer look at her. So he began to walk very slowly and cautiously towards this old woman, and he noticed she was doing something very strange, that she was kneeling down and digging frantically in the soil with her bare hands. And the policeman said at that point he began to call out to the old woman, asking her if she was all right, if she needed any help. But the woman never once looked up at him, never gave any sign she even heard his voice. Finally, the policeman said he got so close to the old woman, he was about to reach out and touch her on the shoulder. And just as he was about to do that, the woman raised her head to look at him for the first time. And then the policeman saw that underneath the black hood that she wore, this woman had no face. All he could see under the hood was darkness. There was no face, no head, nothing. And then the woman was gone, vanished, nowhere to be seen. The policeman looked around him and saw he was all alone in Washington Square. He looked down at the ground where the woman had been digging. Reed watched her dig for several minutes as he approached her, and he saw the soil was now undisturbed. No one had been digging there. 
The policeman said he had never heard of the legend of Leah before seeing her early that morning, and that he doesn't believe in ghosts or anything supernatural like that. But he knows what he saw, and he's still trying to find a rational explanation for what he experienced that day in Washington Square. If you ever visit Washington Square, remember that wherever you step on its ground, you are walking on someone's body. So walk with respect. And perhaps if you go there at night and look into the darkness and in between the trees, you might see the apparition of Leah. My final story about the Philadelphia Phantoms takes us to the most historic and one of the most haunted places in the entire city, the Pennsylvania State House, Independence Hall. It is the building where the Second Continental Congress met, where the Declaration of Independence was debated and signed, and where the U.S. Constitution was debated and signed. It is within the walls of that building where America was born. With so much history in Independence Hall, it's no surprise that people say it's one of the most haunted places in Philadelphia. There are many ghost stories about Independence Hall that have been experienced through the years. Ben Franklin's ghost has been seen walking through the long gallery in the dead of the night. Park rangers say they sometimes hear the sounds of many voices echoing, talking, laughing in the chamber where the Declaration of Independence was signed. And they go to investigate, thinking that somehow a huge group of people has broken in, and they find the room quiet and empty, and as soon as they close it, the, the door and start to walk away, the voices start talking again. Perhaps my favorite ghost story about Independence Hall was told by a park, two park rangers that worked there several years ago. Their story begins at one o'clock in the morning. They were standing outside of the building in front of its door talking to each other to pass the time. Then they got a radio call from their headquarters saying there had been a breach of security inside Independence Hall that the motion sensors were detecting the presence of an intruder inside the building. So the park rangers investigated Independence Hall thoroughly from top to bottom, and they found no intruder, nothing out of place. Everything was just as it should have been. So they radioed back to headquarters and gave the all-clear, thinking it was just a joke or maybe a training exercise, something like that. To their surprise, headquarters radioed back to them immediately, and headquarters said, No, there's definitely someone inside the building. It's a man. We saw him on the security cameras up on the second floor, but then we lost him, but we haven't seen him leave the building. He's got to be in there somewhere. You've got to find him. Find out how he got in. So the park rangers searched Independence Hall a second time, searching any place a man could conceivably be hiding, checking underneath every table, behind every door, and still they found nobody there. So they radioed back to headquarters and said, Look, we just can't find this intruder that you keep talking about. Can you check the security cameras again? If you can see him, tell us where he is right now. And then there was a very long silence and the two park rangers stood there waiting alone in the dark. And finally, headquarters did radio back to them, and it turned out to be the last time headquarters had contact with those two park rangers that night. Headquarters said, We're looking at the security cameras. We see you two guys right now. That intruder is standing right beside the two of you. The two men looked around them, but they saw nothing there, and then they heard something. Footsteps coming down the staircase behind them. Thinking they were finally going to catch the intruder they've been searching for all this time, they turned around, shone their flashlights on the staircase, and saw that it was empty. And yet, 
They still heard the sound of footsteps coming closer and closer towards them. And as the two park rangers watched, they said they saw the ghost of a man begin to appear on the staircase, a man wearing a uniform that looked like it was from the colonial era. The park rangers took a brief look at each other to make sure they were both seeing the same thing on the staircase, and then they ran out of Independence Hall into the night. They called the next day and said they are quitting immediately. And ever since that terrifying night those two men spent at Independence Hall, they have said they will never set foot anywhere near the building again. This ghostly man in colonial uniform is the spirit seen most frequently at Independence Hall by staff and visitors alike. It's thought to be the ghost of a man by the name of Joseph Fry. Joseph Fry was a doorkeeper at Independence Hall. He lived in an apartment in the west wing of the building. One night, Joseph Fry was discovered dead, one of the many victims of the yellow fever epidemic of 1793. Now, at this time, Philadelphia was the temporary capital of the United States, and the idea that the yellow fever had gotten into Independence Hall itself was a terrifying thought. The building was evacuated. Everyone involved in the government fled the city, and they left Joseph Fry's body to rot there. Independence Hall stood abandoned during the epidemic. People sold coffins in its doorways to bury the dead. It wasn't until the epidemic ended in November of 1793 that what was left of Joseph Fry's body by that point was removed from Independence Hall and buried, most likely in a mass grave in Washington Square. But his ghost continues to be seen both inside and outside of Independence Hall, guarding the building as he did when he died there centuries ago. This is how I always close my ghost tour of Philadelphia. It took me about eight years to get it right. My friends, I hope you've enjoyed these ghost stories of Philadelphia tonight. Philadelphia is a city with a rich history, as I'm sure all of you know. And with so much history in these streets, in these buildings, in our burial grounds, it doesn't take much imagination to think that perhaps the ghosts of those long dead still remain here, watching us now from the shadows. You may not believe in ghosts at all, you may not believe the stories I've told you tonight, and that's perfectly fine. However, the real test will come a little later tonight, when you're in bed and all the lights are off. You may wake up in the middle of the night and feel that you're not alone in the room, that there's something standing in one of the corners that should not be there, something darker than the darkness. You may hear footsteps approach your bed or feel something breathing right next to your face on the pillow. And if that should happen to you, remember the stories I told you tonight and wonder if one of the ghosts of Philadelphia decided to follow you home. And with that thought, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And then I blow my lantern's candle out, leaving us in darkness. When I first conceived this podcast, I thought about it in terms of themed seasons. Season one would be all about my favorite ghost stories, the haunted places that have left the deepest mark on my imagination throughout my life. Those tales are now told. This is the end of the first season of the Going Dark Theater podcast. Season 2, which is also planned to be 13 episodes, will be focused on my favorite unsolved mysteries. Mm -hmm. These will be presented in chronological order, 
the first case beginning in 1888, and the last ending near the present day, in 2017. Some will be very famous mysteries, and some will likely be unknown to most of you. It is not my intention to merely do a narrative of the cases. Many others have told the, the stories that way very well already. It is always my intention in my storytelling to focus on the human beings involved, to honor the dead, and try to bring them back to life in your imagination, to perhaps better understand what happened to them and why. Because Season 2 will involve much more in-depth research on my part, moving forward I am planning to post new episodes every two weeks. If I happen to finish an episode sooner, I will upload it, but let's plan on every two weeks, for now. Since the Going Dark Theatre podcast launched in November, it has received over 500 individual downloads. That's probably not a lot in the scheme of things, but for me, I am incredibly grateful. Doing this has been a dream come true for me, and I thank all of you for listening to these tales. I hope to continue giving you nightmares for a long time to come. Next time we meet in season two, I'll tell you the story of what happened during England's infamous Autumn of Terror in 1888. It is not the tale of Jack the Ripper. He, whoever he was, will not be the main focus this time. Instead, I will tell you the tale of the Whitechapel women. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theater on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to episode transcripts and other spooky things I'm working on, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month, and all funds go towards making this podcast a reality. I am your host, Josh Hitchens, and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater. Until our next midnight together, my friends, I wish you all very pleasant dreams. Thank you again for listening. And now, going dark.